Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. So that's what I, I was in treatment in 1994 for Christmas. And it's, and I've worked in treatment on Christmases because I like getting time and a half many Christmases. And Christmas is like the perfect alcoholic holiday, right? Because alcoholism to me is depression and the use of alcohol to cope with depression, right? The depression can be trauma-oriented, caused in childhood, be organic, caused in neurobiology, can be... Um, can be a combination of both, can be personality generated. There's a lot of different depressions. And since I was a kid, I come from a medical family here in LA. So a lot of doctors and nurses in my family and, and like always around, right on my mom's side. We have a couple of nursing homes that we still are, we're the third generation still own, but rent to other people right here in Culver City. So I grew up around medicine, around, you know, psychiatry and alcoholism, because in the old days, in the 50s and 60s, I was born in 61, they didn't have drug and alcohol treatment centers. There was no such thing. So you went to a sanitarium, either you were going to die of liver disease or you, were, you needed to be stabilized from your alcoholic binge. So my family did a lot of that in Culver City for a lot of celebrities, right? They would just go into our nursing home for a month or a couple weeks, I can't remember, because um, I was so little. But I just remember people you'd see on television, they'd just be walking around the nursing home. And then just as quickly as they appeared, they'd be gone. <laughs> And, I, and it wasn't until decades later I realized, oh my God, it was alcoholics that they had in the nursing home because there was nowhere else to put them, right? And one of my childhood memories is, and um, I don't mind saying it, so Rod Sterling, the guy who created Twilight Zone, was an alcoholic, right? And he was in the sanitarium one time, and I loved Twilight Zone. I was like eight years old. And I went to his room and I just opened the room door to look at him because my mom used to do accounting there. And, and I opened the, win the room and he was just sitting on his bed smoking a cigarette, just like an alcoholic picture of a guy in a hospital. Because <laughs> everybody smoked then everywhere all the time. And I just remember I just looked at him and he waved to me. He was kind of in silhouette like with just one light on by his, by his bedside, and I just waved to him, and then I just shut the door. <laughs> so I've been around psychiatry and medicine and this kind of world since I was a child. And, and my family, it's a kind of fucked up story, it's in a movie called Bob and the Monster, you can watch it, but my sister was my mother, my parents adopted me because my dad wanted a boy, that's where it turned out. So. My middle sister got pregnant when she was 14, in 1960. That wasn't really what you wanted for your perfect Southern California family. <laughs> so 
my dad, we were Catholics, and my, you know, it was going to be that she was going to have the baby and and give it up for adoption. And then my dad apparently, hey, hey, how you doing? My dad apparently th thought one night, probably when he was drinking, because he was a big drinker and alcoholic and died of alcoholism, he thought, I've always wanted a boy. If it's a boy, we'll adopt it. <laughs> if it's a girl, it goes to Catholic Charities. <laughs> and I, I think it's the luckiest thing ever that I was adopted by him and my family, but... A lot of adoptees that I meet in treatment process always are looking for if they would have gone to a different family or if they would have been with their natural parents, things wouldn't have worked out the way they did. And there's a lot of this last couple generations are always wanting to meet their natural parents. I, I ended up meeting my sister when I was 13 or 14. They told me on Christmas night, drunk, they just decided it's time to tell Bobby who his mommy is on Christmas. So Christmas always held this special place for me and alcoholism. And, and so they tell me that, my, that, you know, Nancy is really your mother, but we're your parents. That's what my parents told me, my grandparents or whatever. And I was like, I got it immediately. I was like, smart, I knew, okay, I get it. And all I wanted to know was, I don't have to go live with her, do I? Because <laughs> she was crazy, right? And she was remarried, and, and uh, you know, she was alcoholic, and she was just really kind of scary. And I thought they were saying I had to go live with her. And they were like, and I said, do I have to go live with her? And they were like, oh, no, Bobby, you're our son. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was cool with it. I understood it in some weird 13-year-old boy version of it, right? But they started sending me to therapy from that because my family knows medicine and psychiatry and whatever, so they thought, well, it's, we should probably get Bobby some, to a psychiatrist. And that's when I started going to a psychiatrist when I was 13 years old. And that's when I was put on medicine, the archaic medicines that you kind of hear about. Um, one was phenobarbital. They put hyperactive children on phenobarbital. I was on it most of my teenage years. Phenobarbital. Ritalin. And not Ritalin, they didn't have then. But phenobarbital is this, you know, heavy sedate, sedating drug. Some of you have been on it. If you're alcoholic, that's what they use to detox you. Yeah. Phenobarbital. So imagine you giving that to a kid who's like coming into his own in his, you know, in his young adulthood. Anytime I acted inappropriate, they'd give me phenobarbital. And then I would just zombie out. I remember many times I'd get the phenobarbital and I would just sit in front of the TV and kind of drink bubble up and just zombie out and watch TV, <laughs> right? And so I was trained, like many young people these days are trained to be a drug addict from before I even knew what being a drug addict was. So the, it, it just sends, sets into motion, and that's why I don't have a lot of, I don't think psychiatry has a lot of solutions for alcoholics, for drug addicts. I think they have a lot of symptom management. Symptom management is different than solving the problem, right? And the problem, as you get older and you get more advanced in your whatever in your alcoholism or whatever you want to call it alcoholism is a bad term for it i'll admit that drug addict people don't seem to like so addict doesn't seem to work um 
we need a better term for it, right? It's a very shaming term to call yourself an alcoholic all the time. It's a, we need a better term, but I just call it alcoholism because so, that's what I was accepted I had and I treated and I kind of went through education to become, you know, a helper of alcoholics. So it's always been called alcoholism. And, but I, I'll admit it's a bad term. But so psychiatry was just treating my symptoms. I would go there and say, you know, my mom really doesn't love me, which she didn't. That's the honest truth. My mother didn't want to have a kid. My dad did. My mom had raised three girls already. She just wanted to hang out at the fucking pool and smoke those cigarettes with the plastic filters and wear fabulous gowns and be fabulous. That's what she wanted. So, you know, what happened was I was raised by my younger sister. I have three older sisters. One was my natural mother. Her younger sister, Susan, really raised me. She was 12 when I was born. Um, she's the one who got me up in the morning. She's the one who fed me. She treated me. She always used to tell stories. She's dead now, but she used to tell stories. Like, she just put her dolls. She was kind of, you know, not... This is back in a more innocent time where 12-year-old girls still had dolls. She would just put her dolls and then put me <laughs> with her dolls. I was never breastfed because that was an era where breastfeeding is not something you do. Uh, better living through chemistry. We've found, found something even better than breast milk, which is formula, right? That's what the, the 60s was like, the late 50s and early 60s. So I was never breastfed. I was raised by my 12-year-old sister, and my mother didn't really want a kid. This this will cause you attachment disorder, right? This will cause you difficulty with relationships because children need to be nurtured and need to be held and need to be loved and need to be protected. And they need somebody there for them, right? And if you don't have that, you develop attachment disorder. There's no way out of that. You can't have a childhood like I had and feel loved not without some work. Well, what psychiatry does is just deal with your anxiety, deal with your depression, deal with your anger, with medication. Those are just the symptoms of what's wrong. So for decades, psychiatry want nothing to do with drug addicts and alcoholics. They wanted nothing to do with it. It's legendary. It's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Doctors didn't want to deal with alcoholics. And the term that a doctor at Akron General Hospital where, or New York City Methodist Hospital where Dr. Silkworth worked, who kind of co-invented Alcoholics Anonymous, he'd corner doctors and try to get them involved with alcoholic cases. And they wouldn't want to, be, to deal with it. And then finally one doctor was honest enough with him to say, I can't deal with those people because they break my heart. I can't deal with them. I can, I can fix, you know, I have, uh, I'm a doctor and I know how to fix what I can fix. You can do everything you can for an alcoholic and they don't get fixed. Doctors were wiser a hundred years ago than they are today about dealing with alcoholics and drug addicts. And now, so, so what happened was I, I, from a very early age, I went all the way up the ladder, all the way into my 20s. I was always going to psych, one psychiatrist or another, one doctor or another, one therapist or another. So I'm not somebody that's not experienced with being an active alcoholic and being 
treated by psychiatry. I'm very familiar with it. When you get into drug treatment, it's supposed to be something different. It's something more unique than just that. It's supposed to be directness, game planning, problem solving, solution oriented, not problem oriented, right? And so a lot of times what they'll do, and why I wanted to talk about Christmas, what they'll do is they'll, they'll know that you're going to be down and depressed for Christmas. So they'll try to boost you up with a lot of feel-goody therapy stuff or try to, you know, make very sure you'll have some med checks here this week or last week to make sure that your meds are working good. Everyone's very concerned about the holidays for you. If you're going home, there's a lot of concern with that. If you're going to be here, there's a lot of concern with that. The reason why is what F. Scott Fitzgerald said, the, holiday, the Christmas is a sad and joyous occasion. They are. There's a sadness to Christmas. We really feel it when we're not drinking for the first time. We, we kind of use drugs or alcohol to kind of gloss over the sadness of Christmas. Then, what is Christmas? It's the time where we get together with the people who traumatized us and didn't raise us right. That's the most fucked up. Your dysfunctional family system that you come from. You're going to go act like everything is fine for one night. You know what I mean? Or, or for a couple nights, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Right? So we're put into this pressure-filled situation as alcoholics and newly sober people to deal with kind of hypocrisy on the one hand. Right? Um, to deal with the, what is this? I always get a little emotional at Christmas because I think it's gross. Why can't we just be like this to everybody all the time? Why does it have to be on this holiday that you say gracious things to people? Why is it that everyone's nicer for about two weeks? Am I only supposed to be nice to people when Jesus was born? I thought his teachings was to be nice all the time to everyone, everywhere every second. It's just a weird thing about Christmas. It's got this sadness and this, this birth and this kind of, it's just a weird holiday. And then you got Santa Claus. It's a fucking weird thing, right? Little children sit on some weird man's lap dressed in a red outfit. Like, do we ever question these things that we're so emotionally affected by? It's just December 25th. It's just another day. But we kill ourselves on Christmas. We relapse on Christmas. We, we convince ourselves that, that being in rehab isn't a good idea at Christmas. Right? If not Christmas, when? The holidays are an emotional time and you're battling with early sobriety, you're in treatment, you're you're newly sober it's a scary precarious time and you gotta you gotta really be mindful of it and so i had a great woman teach me how to be mindful of it i have the right to say no first rule of christmas i have the right to say no the mistake you make is in giving away all those choices like you don't have those choices you have the choices to say listen mom we're coming over Four o'clock, we're going to be for dinner and the Christmas, you know, and we do the presents and then we got to get home to do our thing. We got a long drive, whatever it is. Half truce, 
but you're saying, I need to get out of there. I don't want to be there at 8 and 9 and 10 o'clock when everybody's drunk and they start attacking me for being a liberal. I don't want to be there. It's true. That's what happens in my family. So I would, you know, I'd get there right at, you know, half hour before dinner, do dinner, do the presents, you know, we got to wrap it up. We're going to get out of here. We've got to get over to somewhere and go do something. And actually, we're just going home to get out of the, the kind of problems that fa dysfunctional families have. Um, game plan. Mindfulness. Have a game plan. What, what you're going to do if you're alone? A game plan. Right? Being alone at Christmas is, is weird, too. A lot of us are not welcome at home sometimes. I was not welcome for years and years and years. We just get lonely. We get, if this is a state of sense of loneliness and feeling of unworthiness and, and hope, sometimes later in, in it, hopelessness and helplessness, Christmas represents that. It re represents how inadequate we are. Why am I not a beloved like my, my nephews are? Why am I always, oh, Bobby? Sometimes you could just see the sadness in my family's eyes when they would see me, right? The disappointment. Like, I'm not, I'm, I mean, I'm, I think they wanted me to live up to my potential, and my alcoholism, my drug addiction caused me to not, even get to a place where I could. How about that? Because my family, my family's big on education. I didn't get much of an education, and um, that was mostly because of my addiction and my choices in life. Right. So there, I was never going to be able to fulfill what they wanted for me. They wanted me to be a doctor, or a lawyer, or you know that was a big one, lawyer, because I like to talk so much. So. So I never was going to be able to fulfill it. That decision got made when I was like 19 or 20, right? So I did lead a successful life, at least financially in their eyes, for a period of time from till I was like 30. And I thought that would make them happy, and I realized that didn't that wasn't what they were talking about, though they're very concerned with money and wealth and all that. What they wanted was for me to fulfill my potential. And no matter how much money I made at music, that wasn't what I was supposed to be doing, not someone like Bobby. I mean, as long as I continued to drink and take drugs, there was never gonna be any approval for me, right? A lot of times we get very reactionary and wanna blame our families for why we're taking drugs. I think a lot of people do that. Like, in the end of the day, that's not really a good argument. So good arguments are, I'm fucked, I'm going to unfuck myself by putting the responsibility of the situation onto somebody who's getting away scot-free. Nobody really accepts that they're responsible for another adult's uh, decisions, right? That's why the trauma, childhood trauma, will never work in the American public's eyes because you're a 35-year-old adult making your own decisions, Right? That's why every time I look around in our culture, I think that's trauma that caused that. That's bad parenting that caused that. I just think that once you 
come to grips with your drinking and drug problem, it forces you to come to grips with the underlying issues. You won't be able to keep yourself from exploding unless you kind of look at how you think the really important things in life. Do I feel loved? Do I allow people to love me? Do I love? These are the core issues of existence. Everyone should be thinking about those things. Instead, we're thinking about how much money we made and what gossip some celebrity did yesterday. We're distracted by nothingness. And we never get to the essence of what's important. By having a drug and alcohol problem, I think it, gives, it affords you the opportunity to look at what's important. Right? And never more so than at Christmas. You'll know if you're going to stay here at Christmas, you'll know your soul a little bit better. I knew my soul a little bit better after being in treatment for Christmas. I knew that, that I wasn't alone. I had just gotten myself into a predicament where I was alone. That I had kind of got myself into that predicament. Um, and I didn't have to be in alone next Christmas. Right? And that drugs and alcohol were this like breadcrumb kind of thing that always got me to be alone at Christmas. Or feeling alone. Right? And if you feel alone, if an alcoholic feels alone, they're going to drink. If a drug addict feels alone, they're going to take drugs. There's no doubt about it. If you feel hopeless, helpless, lost, alone, you will drink and take drugs. That's why so much of this is based on be with each other. Reach out to people. Let people get to know you. You know, be proactive. Be a part of. Right? Reach out to other people. And what's interesting is we're now an army of people who kind of know that. I see them all through the layers of where I go. Like the biggest term is I'm a friend of Bill W's, right? So anywhere I go at Christmas, the holidays, I was at a Christmas party two weeks ago where they have Christmas parties beginning of December. I go and, and two guys came up to me throughout this, this like conference party thing. Um, I'm a friend of Bill W's. Or I have nine years. I'll have nine years in January, right? That means that they're like me. Like there is this community of people I don't even know that are like me, that have really gotten down to the core of themselves and like battled with it and won and overcome and, and are trying to do the right thing and, you know, or going through life, not drinking and not taking drugs and not using excuses, be a part of. That was the thing that alcoholism strived to prevent me from doing. Feel a part of. No, always feel separate and different and alone and better than or less than or lonely or sad or unloved. Right? The, the antithesis of feeling unloved is to love, not to try to get love. Just love. Reach out to someone in love and you'll, it will, you'll experience something. It lifts you. It changes you. Being of service helps you. Calling somebody and telling them that you love them or asking them how they're doing. This changes our neurobiology. This changes how we think about things. It changes the pathways of the brain that are active. I'm all of a sudden now concerned with you. And, you know, and, and that you not not feel alone, right? In the end, aloneness is real, but we have each other in the meantime.
I heard that at a spiritual teaching. Aloneness is real. Jimi Hendrix said it, it's me that's going to die when it's my turn to die. We're alone, really. You're, you know, one by one, we're all just going to go into whatever it is, and you're going to be alone. In the meantime, you don't have to be. Driven by the fear of that, you don't have to be. Driven by the trauma inside your personality that is you, you don't have to be. All you have to do is reach out. All you have to do is take a positive action towards other human beings. It doesn't have to be everybody. It just has to be somebody that you think you have like-minded feelings about. A friend of mine got hit by a car, and I didn't hear about it for five days, and I called him. I go, you okay? He goes, yeah, I'm in the rehabilitation. They want to get you out of the hospital so fast in America now that you can get hit by a car, both legs broken, your pelvis shattered, your head fractured, and they have you out of the hospital in four days. This is a fucking madness. So he's in a sanitarium rehab place, and he seemed in a good mood, and, and I said, what's going on? Because he's generally a depressive type guy, right? He sounded up. He sounded happy. I thought he must be on some good drugs. And uh, he goes, I don't know. It's just the outpouring, and everybody's coming and visiting me. It just, Bob, it just lifts you up, right? It lifts you up. Just people visiting, just people saying they love you, just people caring, just people being around. So we all have to do that for each other so we can all be lifted up. And that's what the holidays is supposed to be, and that's what it lets people down. It, does, it doesn't do that anymore, right? And so we're going to need to survive it and kind of try to hang on to each other and lift each other up. People come with joy and it lift you up, and then they, you know, they'll talk about themselves and irritate you and, and say they'll help you move and then they don't. But you've got to be in the game of people. And alcoholism says, no, you don't. Just stay alone by yourself. Just fuck them. Don't trust them. That's AA's bullshit. AA's bullshit. But it's practiced by humans. It's just like any other religion to me. I'm not big on religion. I'm big on people. Right? There's never been a situation where I've been in with people where I can't feel connected to them. I've talked to murderers. I've talked to homeless people with schizophrenia. There's a connection. That's all we've got is each other. It's all we've got. There's no lines in the ground that say, this person owns this building. That's just a figment of computers. There's actually no thing such as money. There's actually no such thing as time. There's just us, this rock, we're on, right? My time, time doesn't exist. There's, this is something somebody made up. It's not actually 7.30. It's just, we all agree that it is. My name is actually Bob. We don't, I don't even need a name. I'm a human. I'm right here. We don't. It's all just things that humans do, right? And that separation, my name is Bob. I'm better than you because my name is Bob. Um, I have more money than you, I'm better than you. You're less than me. I'm less than you because you have more money than me. All this shit, this shit, this shit, this shit is a lie. When you're with people, you feel what the essence of the spirit of things are. Right? And that, that is the thing that you have to think about during the holidays. Like you're going to go around people that 
bum me out. They got some liabilities, but they also got some positivity. You're also a part of something. It makes you, you see your nieces. Like most of the time with my family, I just love little kids. I love seeing little kids open presents. What's better than that? But there's this great celebration of humanness that children are that we lose as we age and we lose as we become indoctrinated into what I call this air-conditioned nightmare that is humanity, 21st century Western European humanity. It's awful. And, but you can walk around it and deal with it and live with it and tolerate it and try to do the best you can. Right? That's what, that's what I try to do. Right? Sobriety didn't make me go, oh, the world is a beautiful place. It didn't. It did not. I saw the, play, the world as the same ugly place that I thought it was when I was a child, that I thought it was when I was a young adult, that I thought it was when, it, when I was, you know, in my disease, as they call it. But it's also what sobriety has given me, it's also a beautiful place. I didn't have that before. It's also a place of great compassion and great joy. Right? It's naive to say it's all compassion and great joy. Probably three, four thousand children starved to death while we've been sitting here talking. It's not a beautiful world. But parts of it are amazing. And you can make your part of it better. That's the truth of it. Like, and I decided I want to make my little place in the world better. I want to make drug treatment better. I don't want people talked down to. If that's the only thing I can contribute to the world, is when you're in drug treatment that I have anything to do with, you will not be condescended to. You will not be treated like you're stupid. You will not be treated like you're just a number or just somebody to make money off of. You'll be treated with the same respect and dignity that I treat the staff, that they treat each other, and that Evan and Jared and I treat each other. That we're all in this together and we're all equal human beings. I may have more wisdom than you about being sober, but you probably got more wisdom than me about being responsible adult, because I'm not really good at that. It's just wisdom that I learned from somebody else, and I know it's knowledge, and then I just pass it on to you. And if I have this equal community, then you'll share what you know that could benefit me. This exchange of ideas and, and knowledge and wisdom, it's powerful. It's a, it's a really interesting thing. But you can't accomplish it with a pyramid. You know, I'm on the top, and then Evan and Jared, and then the, tech, the techs are on the bottom, and you guys are like on the bottom, bottom. Right? No. Flat. We're all human beings. We're all equal. And you should, be, you should treat each other accordingly. Right? And that's the one thing that I think aloe is different than any other treatment center. And I'm proud of that. You're a child of God. Every person I, I see is a child of God. Why does Shiva have a twinkle in her eyes? This is kind of saying by Alan Watts, his name is. You ever heard of Alan Watts? He's a philosopher guy. Yeah. And he said, why does Shiva have a twinkle in her eye? Because she sees the godliness in every human face. So, you know, I'm not a big God guy, but I am that you are, you are amazing. Interesting. It's amazing. The human, human beings are amazing to witness, to listen to, to watch, 
Um, and, and it's awe-inspiring. And it's more awe-inspiring addicts, because addicts go from this place of hopelessness and helplessness and almost death to enlightenment. Most people don't go through that. Most people just go through kind of not that lost, not that enlightened, not that lost, not that enlightened. They just go along and go to Disneyland and, you know, retire and then not that lost, not that enlightened. Ours is like this up and down fucking radical thing like the stock market the last three weeks. And all of a sudden it just levels off and starts to ascend. That's an amazing life experience. Most addicts and alcoholics have experienced much deeper, much broader, much more diverse human, human feelings than any normal person. We're exceptional at understanding and kind of grasping and seeing and viewing the world of human relations, right? Um, and uh, one, one night I went to a party with my uh, girlfriend at the time and it was, it was just the greatest artist in the history of mankind were at this party. The greatest artist. And, and I sat there and I held court and it was um, David Hockney is a great painter, David Hockney. He was there and he was sitting across from me and we were chatting and talking and and just the greatest artists in the world were at this dinner party, and I was there. And I could hold my own, like talking to people about art or whatever. And then I dropped my girlfriend off at home, and then I went and smoked crack on Alvarado and Temple behind the Arco station with a couple of black dudes. I knew that no one at the dinner party could talk with these people, and I knew that these people couldn't talk with those people. And I knew that most people couldn't talk to either of them. Alcoholics have amazing abilities to connect with people, to be genuine, disarming, open. The first thing I said to David Hockney, well, I don't know much about art. Like, like you think that he's had something he hears most, most often? Or does he hear, like, oh, yeah, the, the, I saw your thing. Oh, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. I don't know much about art. I know, I know the things you were doing with photographs. That was cool, right? He found it genuine and disarming that here's a guy not trying to put on any airs about he knows my work. I don't really know even, I just know the, he took photographs, uh, uh, Insta, you know, Polaroids and like stacked them all up or something. And... And then I was talking to the guys downtown, and I felt connected to them, and, and I knew them, and, and I liked their company, too. Um, you probably have some, some swath of human experience like that. Most alcoholics do. Normal people don't. They can't talk to David Hockney. They can't talk to the crackheads in downtown. They can't talk to you. They can't talk to me. So why do they, we think they're superior to us? Why? because we want to feel inadequate and less than. And they always tell us we're inadequate and less than. So then we just buy it and it plays into the whole thing. Like, no, think about it. You're able to, Dr. Joe says this thing, addicts have a natural ability to survive. Think about, think about how amazing you are. 
Stop thinking about how inadequate you are. Right? You have a couple liabilities, you got a lot of pluses or possibilities or, or positive things. Right? This ruminating on our inadequacies never helps anything. Like, you know, I, I always hear people tell, they always love to tell me they're dyslexic. I said, so what? What do you got to fucking do now? You're 35 years old, 40 years old, whatever, who cares? You know, can you read a phone? That's all people do, right? But they want to explain why they didn't do good in school 25 years ago. Who cares? It's over with. Like, you're, take your amazing language skills and amazing people skills or amazing music skills or, or, your, or your compassion towards other people and go make that work for you. You got 35, 40 more years left. You're going to sit around and talk about how you were dyslexic when you were 12 and that's why you didn't graduate from college? Who cares? Another excuses. Like, stop focusing on your liabilities. Yeah, they're there. Some of them you can do something about. Some of them you can't do anything about. Right? Um, you know, it's weird. We accept our physical limits, but we won't accept our kind of personality, intellectual limits, or, or emotional limits, right? I'm overly sensitive. Um, my whole dream of my life was to play basketball in the NBA, right? I didn't really give it up till I was like 24. <laughs> I thought I could do a walk-on. Because <laughs> you hear once in a while somebody walks on to an NBA team, like I'm five foot nine. I'm going to do a walk-on. <laughs> Yeah, when Muggsy Bogues came along, I was like, I can fucking take him down, right? But it's, we then eventually accept what we physically can't do. I'll give you an example. You don't notice till you're really old that you can't do monkey bars anymore. You, you're never going to probably experience it because you're never going to try unless you have a two and an eight-year-old kid who at the park asks you, can you do the monkey bars? My eight-year-old finally did it all the way across. He was so proud of himself. Right? And, and then um, other kids were doing it. And my son said, can you do it? And I said, sure, I can fucking do it. I, just, I hadn't done it in maybe 40 years. <laughs> I don't know. I consider myself pretty strong. Monkey bars are hard. You have to have rhythm. You have to go from one to the other. And I try it like four times. And all these kids, like these eight-year-old kids are standing around looking at me. I was getting frustrated. I was like... Fuck it. I guess at a certain point you lose your ability to do the monkey bars. Um, I'm not going to be a bas NBA basketball player. I'm not going to run a marathon. My friends started running marathons and they wanted to get me into it. It's hard to start running at 50 years old, right? I missed the boat by about 10 years. And they're my age too. They're 55. And there was a certain point. I know my physical limitations, but I still don't want to acknowledge that I'm so sensitive emotionally. I don't want to acknowledge it, that you can hurt my feelings very easily, right? Just won't accept it. I'll accept my physical limitations. I will not accept my emotional and psychological and intellectual limitations, right? It's something that you have to kind of really grapple with, right? Um, one of the things that, that happens is um, you know, when you, when you label yourself something, like I don't mind saying I have mental illness, right? A lot of people mind that. 
recently, my wife has said, you know, you keep saying that, and Elvis hears you. He's eight now. Like when I was saying it when, I was, when he was two and three and four, it scares him. So I had to sit down and talk with him. I go, you know what mental illness is, right, Elvis? Like, because when you're eight, nine, you start to realize things. Like some people are off and some people are this. And I said, there's lots of different forms of mental illness. You can seem totally normal in every way, whatever you're thinking when I say mentally ill. And he said, you, you always say you're, you have mental illness, but you don't seem like you have mental illness. And I said, that's the thing about mental illness. A lot of people that have it don't seem like they have it. And they don't want to acknowledge it, and they don't want to talk about it. So Elvis, that's why I talk about it. Because I want people to know it's okay to be mentally ill. Right? I use that term. Um, the, the new psychiatric term they're trying to do this thing where you're you're there's a continuum <laughs> there's a continuum this is how fucking bullshit our society is there is a continuum of mental health i have depression with suicidality um i deal with it i talk about it i'm honest about it i try to be open about it i recognize i have it it's not going away a pill can't make it go away. I live with it. It's okay to live with it. Why is it okay to live having had cancer, but it's not okay having attempted to kill yourself? Why do you have to keep that a secret? Right? And never more so than the holidays, because there's going to be some people we're going to hear about are going to do something stupid this holiday. It's only December 25th. It's just another day. Right? but somehow we blow it into these bigger and bigger things. Um, I wrote suicide notes when I attempted suicide in 1995. I wrote them, I was, I was pretty done with life. And I was in this motel and I had a lot of drugs so I was in a writing mood. And I wrote letters to pretty much like 19 people, <laughs> like to everyone I knew. and. Some in groups, like there was a couple grouped together. And I always keep the one I wrote to my son at the time he was like eight years old. And I wrote, I know you're probably never going to understand this, but someday I hope that you will. Um, I just, there's something wrong with me that I can never fix. And I love you dearly and know that and know that... Uh, right here, right now, I'm thinking about you, and I just think you'll be better off if I'm gone. I said that to my own child. That's mental illness. That doesn't go away, right? So I live with it. I keep that note, I have it on a clipboard in my office, right? I never sent it to him, because I tried to kill myself, and then I woke up in a puddle of blood. <laughs> <laughs> then you want to live. <laughs> I took a bunch of drugs and then I slipped my wrists in. The, I slipped my wrist in the bathtub and then I woke up like two hours later, like with blood everywhere. And I was like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> and we were laughing about it now, but it, it was fucking crazy. And all of a sudden, like, "Holy shit!" What was I thinking? Right? And it's not to make light of suicide. It's just to make human suicide. Right. Right. And and so what I think is like when people don't like that, I label myself that 
I don't really know what I deal with. Only the individual knows what they deal with, and we can only know if you talk about it. And most people don't talk about it, because it's even worse than being a drug addict, is someone that would take your life. I remember a friend of mine killed himself, and he had a two-year-old kid, and I was mad at him, and I said he was a scumbag, and what a chicken shit, and all that. Like you do in cases like that. And then through time, I just felt like, how lonely and sad do you got to be? And I, that could be me. And, and you know, that's all of us. And, and it doesn't have to be if the individual going through that can just reach out to one person that they trust or like or won't feel, you know, criticized or like, you know, a lot of my friends, if you tell them you're thinking about killing yourself, they, uh, oh, you fucking baby. That's what they'll say. We all deal with it. Like everyone that is close to me deals with it. Um, And it happens a lot at the holidays. I had a couple of guys I knew killed themselves a couple last year, year before last, and it was the first time my son saw me cry. And um, he just stared at me, and I couldn't stop crying. And we're in the Champs d'Elysees in France, in Paris, France, and I got the text, and I started crying. And we had just been posing for a picture in front of Iran Airlines, because we don't have Iran Airlines in America, but my wife's from Iran, and so we were taking a family photo in front of Iran Airlines (laughs) on the Champs d'Elysees. And and I get this text, and this, this... this second friend of mine had killed himself and and I was just started crying and my son kept staring at me and he started crying and he said I you know and I couldn't stop crying and I was trying to reassure him that's okay and he was scared that his dad was crying and 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 I had this moment where I realized I'm not really crying for the guy who did that. I'm not really crying for myself. I'm crying for his children. He had five children. And I felt like, what are they going to say? What, what are they going to think? And then I just walked with my kids home to the house that we had. And, and I, I really thought about that a lot. And I thought, of, that could have been me in 1994. That could have been me a couple of years ago. That, that's what I would have caused people. Right? We have to think about these things. The world will not be better. The world will be without you eventually anyways. Why rush it? Why not try to do the best you can where you are with what you've got going? Right? That's kind of become my philosophy the last couple of years. Like, I'm just going to do my best, and whatever happens, happens. But um, when I do get in that dark, dark place, usually if I just tell my wife or she's starting to understand or I tell a close friend of mine, it kind of gets you out of it. Not always, but it'll kind of, you feel relieved that you told somebody instead of just always keep it inside and do all that stuff. And the reason why I bring it up is because I think alcoholism and suicide go hand in glove. I think they're side by side. All the people I know that have killed themselves are alcoholics. Sober, they've killed themselves sober. They've killed themselves while relapsing after long-term sobriety. They've killed themselves loaded. They've killed themselves, I think, sudden and dramatically just because they felt frustrated, no note. They've killed themselves very mindfully over days, period of time. And when we all look back on it, we're like, why didn't we see that? Right? What the fuck? One of my friends who killed himself, the last thing he said to me was, 
you've helped me so much, Bob. I'll just be forever in your debt, he said to me. I killed himself a couple days later. And I thought, he knew when it, it was a very planned out thing how he killed himself. And so he knew he was going to kill himself when he said that to me. Why did he say that to me? Um, one of the things Dr. Drew thought was to, to, to make me, to not recognize other things that were going on, right? He said this positive thing and it would get me to, one person that would know or suspect or get in his face about things over some events that had happened in his life, if he praised me and made me feel like, oh my gosh, I've done so much for him, um, he was a great, great man. And, and then another friend of mine, who I knew was going to kill herself, and I tried everything I could to prevent it. I tried to get her locked up against her will. I physically held her against her will. Um, there was, at a certain point, there was just nothing you could do. And the first day that she was out of the lockdown, I didn't hear anything. I kept texting a friend of hers, like, is she okay? And she's like, yeah, she's okay. Um, and then, like, a day and a half later, I got the text. You know, she jumped off the roof of her building. And, and I knew she was going to do it. And there was nothing I could do. There was no stopping it. Right? So many people had tried to stop it. Right? And... You know, you just feel impotent in these things. You just feel powerless. You just feel like there's nothing you can do. But most of the time, there is something you can do. And that is the individual reaches out, just love and compassion. Love and compassion. Love and compassion wins in almost any instance. Love and compassion, right? If you're always coming from a loving and compassionate place, you're rarely in kind of trouble with people. It's hard to do if somebody's really coming at you with vitriol, but you know I've been able to do it sometimes. Like I understand that you really hate me and you're mad at me. I get it. I get it. What do you want me to do right now? What What is the right thing? What is it that you want me to do? You just fucking sit there, okay? I'll sit here, okay, and not let that thing rise up where I'm not going to let this person do to me. Because love and compassion is this person is having a really hard time. It probably has very little to do with me. And I just want to be present and see where it goes. And it usually goes to tears. Two times I've really sat with somebody who is just spitting hatred at me. They start to break down, they start to cry, and then I reached over and I held them. And the fact that somebody they were saying they hated and wish was dead and blamed all their problems on sat there and took it. And then when they broke down and cried, comforted them, it's profound. That's not me doing that. I'm not a hero. That's just believing and practicing some ideas. Not just when it's convenient, not just when everybody's watching, not just when it sounds good at a yoga convention, but actually in real life. My favorite statement in Buddhism is, easy to be spiritual on a mountaintop, hard down in the village. Easy to be spiritual up on a mountaintop, hard down in the village. Well, live, we live down in the village. You know, I lived in the village. I don't care about mountaintops. You know, and so most of us live in the village with each other and try to be the best human we can, be the best friend we can, be the best spouse we can, be the best parent we can. And when we're falling short, 
we have friends to help us do better. That's what community is. And that, and that applies directly to sobriety. Like, I know how to stay sober, right? I may not know how to be the best parent. I'm definitely not the best dog owner, right? We have a new dog, and I'm just ready to, like, whatever it costs, send it away and get it trained and bring it back. <laughs> I walked in the rain last night with that fucking dog. It didn't poop, didn't pee. To fucking walk in the rain for 20 minutes, go in the house and poops right as soon as we get inside the door, right? And I'm just like, I didn't get mad. I just yelled for my partner like, I can't deal with this right now. <laughs> and I just walked into my office like, I'm so wet. And the dog is like, shit's right when we get in the house. Unbelievable. So today I was on the internet like, where's the place you can send them? You know, you send them and they train them and they leash train them and they train them to sit when you say and da 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 and whatever it costs, that's where the dog's going. Well, <laughs> that's not what's happening. We're going to dog training class tomorrow at <laughs> 2 o'clock. <laughs> it's a fucking nightmare. I said, well, good. Good, good, good. I went to my wife this morning. I said, well, good. And she said, no, we're going. And I said, but you're the master of the dog. She said, that's, the trainer said, that's bullshit. Because I have this idea that dogs need one master my wife should be it, right? And she said, that's bullshit. You just made that up. And I said, no, that's common wisdom about dogs. You've heard that too, right? So apparently that's a lie <laughs> by people who want to get out of going to dog training classes. <laughs> All right, you guys, thanks so much. I'll see you in the next couple of weeks. Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call.